Naomi Thompson is amazing. She's a lawyer and a thought leader in diversity and inclusion. She has worked in Massachusetts and Rhode Island. It is my honor to welcome Naomi Thompson to Hot Mama Chronicles. Welcome, Naomi. Thank you so much for having me. It is truly an honor, Amelia. So we at Hot Mama Chronicles always have a practice. And so we're gonna start, we're gonna ask you to jump right in and just tell us your origin story. How did you grow up? What was the young Naomi like? So when you asked me this question before, I gave it some thought and I went way back, not <laughs> before me, because when I think of my origin, I think of my ancestors and those who really made me who I am and laid the foundation for my existence. So my, my origins go back um, to the continent, uh, as my grandfather would say. On my mother's father's side, um, my great-great-grandfather came from the Cape Verde Islands, and that's the connection to Christine Rose. Uh, and um, his story is pretty amazing, and he's a hero to many generations, six, seven, eight generations that followed him because he migrated as a whaler, um, traveled all around the world to Hawaii and different places and back to Cape Verde, uh, and eventually picked up his wife, his two daughters, and my great-grandfather, uh, and brought them on a very perilous journey to the United States. And I say perilous because in the midst of that, the ship that they were on got caught in a storm, is the story that is told to our family generations and generations. And the captain of that ship jumped over and committed suicide, and they were left wandering in the ocean. And the story is that my great-great-grandfather tied his family to the mast until um, a ship, a barge came in and brought them to Ellis Island. So that's a part of why I am here and it's a rich part of my family tradition. Wow. But I'm, yeah, I'm one of those people who is very fortunate that on many sides, my grandparents were able to tell the story of how we came from Africa on my father's mother's side, tracing it back to Senegal, and my grandmother on my mother's side, through the Caribbean. And so I am a child of the diaspora. Yes. <laughs> and that's the, that's some of my my origins. So of who who I came to be. But then you asked about my childhood and who I was as a young woman. And so both of my parents are educators. My mother taught in the public schools uh, in Medford, Massachusetts, and my father over time went back to school when I was still a young person and he became an educator as well. So I was very blessed to have parents who really valued education and made sure that I received a quality education, but also balanced that with this rich family culture, balanced it with strong faith, raising me in the church, and then um, making sure that I was well-educated. That's amazing. So I know you are a graduate of Suffolk University, but you're also a graduate of Colgate, where you studied religion. Um, how did that help you with your law degree? Well, it, it grounded me. So when I chose to study religion, I the thought was I wanted to know as much about as many different religions so that I could be grounded in my own, uh, so that I knew what the options were. But at the end, um, so I understood my faith. And 
I think about one of the most profound courses I took at Colgate was called The Theological Dimensions of Social Change. And it was a January course where I went to Washington, D.C. and I viewed, went through all of these uh, nonprofit organizations that were all about social change. And I think that that really was another one of those critical moments that kind of formed my connection between religion and social justice and who I, what my values were and the things that I cared about. Now, in terms of religion and how that plays out within the law, you became an attorney. And so what prompted your interest in law? Oh, that's a, a, another one that goes way, way back to <laughs> my childhood. I guess I had a very profound childhood. So when I was really young, like four years old, my best friend or the woman who became my best friend, who's still my best friend to this day, uh, was a product of the foster care system. Okay. So her, the story is, the story is told that her mother and her, her biological mother and her biological father left her to die in an apartment um, when she was born. And, um, and then she was taken, you know, found, uh, rescued, and brought into the foster care system. And there was something about her story, her experience, her origins, and her lived experiences that spoke to my heart that there was a sense of tremendous injustice that was visited upon the most vulnerable among us. And there was something in my heart that said, if I can do something to address that, to fix that, to make that so it's not so, to advocate on behalf of the most vulnerable uh, in our community, then that was the spark that motivated um, me. And then we both worked for, um, at a very young age, like cleaning windows and cleaning house of a judge. And wow. and actually, uh, it was a black woman judge. And I was, didn't know that that was a thing when I was wow. you know, 12 years old, that you could be a, you know, a black woman judge. Maybe I did, but she drew the connection between uh, juvenile justice, uh, being a lawyer, and caring for um, children who had been a part of the system, whether they were abused or neglected or uh, truancy issues or, or whatever. Uh, she helped from me, she crystallized and made for me very real that this could be a path uh, where I could use my passions to help other people. So you mentioned juvenile justice and your um, career led you to be a, an assistant district attorney um, where you um, did just that and you oversaw cases um, in juvenile justice. So, you know, in terms of that connection point between your friend who was in foster care and what drew you to be the ADA, it, was, that, was there a congruency there in those paths or did you just fall into being an ADA that so happened to, to focus on that? No, I, I, there was cl clearly, at, up to that point, I was, <laughs> there was definitely some influency because, you know, you know, at the age of 12 or 13, the passion for wanting to go to law school, to be a lawyer, to help other people, but I didn't really know which way 
Um, I wanted to go to help manifest that. And so before the DA's office, I worked uh, at Greater Boston Legal Services. And again, with the most vulnerable, working in homelessness and housing, uh, helping people to advance in that respect. And then uh, I knew I wanted to be one of those courtroom attorneys and practice law more and, and be in front of judges. And so then I applied for the job in the DA's office and was fortunate enough to uh, receive that position. And so there was definitely that congruency. And then there, working uh, to help with mostly victim-related crimes, so domestic violence cases, uh, crimes against individuals, assault and batteries, things like that, and the district court level. What were you most proud of in doing that work? The ability to make a change in folks' lives, uh, to help people, to help victims, to help victims of domestic violence. I think that that framed the work that I would do probably for the next 20 years after that, where you're you know, advocating to protect um, people in my community um, and to hopefully help them have a safer existence. For sure. So you know it's really interesting in researching your work and researching your path so you were a lawyer but you also worked in diversity in the inclusion space so i want to first ask you if you can just describe what that means um, in terms of what when people say diversity and inclusion and some other people use diversity equity and inclusion what is what does that terminology mean um, so if you can just spend some time in talking that through so I think the terms mean different things to different people, uh, hence diversity, the diversity of lands, diversity in the way people look at it, diversity in the way people define it. When I came into the work, uh, the office that I began working in was called the Office of Affirmative Action and Diversity. And so it was really born out of affirmative action, the work of the civil rights movements in the 1960s and advocating initially on behalf of minorities, quote unquote, people, and I have issues with the use of that word, but that's the word that was used at that time, people of color and, and, and the terminology has evolved over time. And, and women, um, who people who had been pushed to the margins uh, I think, and when you look at an affirmative, the old school affirmative action plan, it was really looking at race and gender um, initially, way, way back, uh, going back over 20 years in this work. Right. But over time, you know, the laws evolved. And so as a lawyer, I came at it almost from a compliance perspective or a legal perspective. And actually for me, it was cleaner that way because I could look at the law and law as it applied to race, color, religion, religious creed, sex, sexual orientation, gender, gender identity, gender expression, genetics. And so within a legal framework is often how I looked at it. But uh, diversity is about all of us, but really appreciating folks who are on the margins advocating in the context uh, that I worked in on um, with, with respect to recruiting, bringing people into the workplace, bringing people into education, giving people opportunities in an effort to level the playing field. So recruitment and retaining people is not enough to give someone a, a job or, or to admit someone into an institution of higher education, but 
you want to have a meaningful experience. You want to be able to persist and grow and advance and have um, the rights and opportunities that other people who are similarly situated. So it's recruitment, it's retention, and then it's climate. You know, now that you're there, now that you've been invited to the party, are you asked to dance? Are you enjoying the party? Are you able to experience all that is wonderful about that? And that it's very challenging to get to that point of inclusion in some uh, instances uh, is extended to belonging. Do you feel as if you belong in that place of employment, in that place of higher education? And so uh, as with you know, our times evolve, so does the definition and uh, depending upon who you ask, their perspective may be very different. No, that's definitely true. When I think of diversity and inclusion, I always think of it as building awareness and empathy um, for people to understand systems and barriers that are that they no, don't necessarily see, you know. And so I think, um, you know, as we are sitting here having this conversation, what is happening in the background is the pandemic. So we have a, a pandemic that has killed millions of people around the world. We have um, the U.S. in um, what I call a tipping point in terms of racial um, justice and social change um, with the uh, various uh, murders of um, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and uh, George Floyd. But there have been countless others um, that, um, you know, have gone on because of police brutality. Um, but, you know, in, embedded in that is this understanding and this awareness of the fact that these systems exist. So how have you in your spaces created a awareness for having these conversations and be helping to people, helping people who may not see the systems understand and see them with empathy for, you know, their humanity? So over the course of my years of doing this work, there have been many, many different ways of doing that. They can be um, in small groups. Uh, it could be through affinity groups or employee resource groups or student organizations, or it could be on a case-by-case -case basis, bringing people together for town hall meetings or um, for focus groups to get more information uh, about or to have conferences. One of the things that I am also really, really proud of is that both while working at, at uh, Northeastern University and at the University of Rhode Island, I was really instrumental in working with others to have host conferences that provided an opportunity for people to come from around the region to talk about the various different systems to, to have police educate other police officers in the community uh, as to how to improve relations, to have leaders come and talk about how you can advance in leadership, even if you are a person on the margins, to, to bring, bring this level of awareness. But if I could, I want to take it a step farther because I think that diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging is about the awareness and education. But for me, in my heart of hearts, I think that that's just the tip of the iceberg. And that's just the, just the beginning part of what's important because the reason why you want to raise awareness and the reason why you want to educate folks with whether it's in our community or in the larger community whether it's those of us who are on the margins or those who are in the majority and mostly those who have the power 
to make change. And so when I think about diversity and inclusion officers, my and my heart of hearts, the objective of that individual is to help influence change in a positive direction. So all of those systems of oppression, all those systems of um, structural racism and discrimination, all the laws and policies and procedures that have systematically continued to widen the wealth gap and widen the health gap. And there are very intentional policies and procedures that are, in my opinion, wrong. And I think that we, it's, it's not enough that we are just aware or woke. We need to be about action and about trying to change those policies and procedures in a real significant way. And there's no reason why in 2020, the wealth gap is as a Abominable as it is right now for Black folks and the health gap and the we. So I think awareness is the beginning, but systematic change is really where we need to be moving as a community. So there are definite steps and practices in doing that. And so in your work, you know, you talked about systems and kind of um, understanding this kind of notion of power. That's what we were talking about, blowing up systems that do no longer work for the status quo. That's really what it is. It's just the, um, how do we move the needle and how do we um, build decision-making power? So how how are, or what are some of the best practices that you've observed in doing that um, and kind of moving the needle? You know, I, I, there's a term that my professor always used to say to me, progress is a steady process. And so, so, and then, you know, I, so I, in thinking of this, you know, we want change yesterday, but in, in understanding that we need to move the needle as well, how have you seen in this work best practices for that? There are many, there's, there's no one solution. There's no panacea. So, you know, some people might say, how do you fix it? There are many ways um, because if we didn't come to this point by one, pro you know, one problem or one solution. I think it's a uh, coming together and identifying what the problems are, and then getting buy-in. Whether it's changing policies, procedures, law, uh, those are critical ways. But also, you can change policies, procedures, and laws, but you also have to have the leadership in place to hold people accountable. Uh, so, you know, I've drafted many a policy or a procedure or been at the table where we, you know, we're contemplating this and that and this is, and then at the end of the day, when it comes time to enforce those policies and procedures, there's not the, the strength of force within it. So um, I think policies and procedures, laws are, are, are one bucket, but I think also having a voice, having a seat at the table, having a critical mass of voices who have been minoritized, marginalized, invited to have a meaningful voice at the table. And when I say that, uh, are people sitting on boards that are making these decisions? And is there a critical mass of individuals who are represent, representing the margins at the table able to make the decision? Are there a significant number of people who are leaders or CEOs or um, executive directors or uh, on the leadership teams of major organizations, major corporations or nonprofit organizations or educational institutions where the decisions are being made 
that can influence those and hold people accountable in the process. So it is that power and privilege that you were talking about and who had, not only who has the, the money, but who is making the decisions and who is able to hold people accountable when it comes time to hire and bring folks in. Often folks of color are left um, to entry level positions. Oh yes, we have X amount of folks in our com company, but where are they in the organization? What kind of power and influence do they have? Are they able to make uh, a change? And is there the support for that at advancing? And then there needs to be an awareness that sometimes people say, well, what do I need to do? And can I check the box? And it's a one and done. And this is 400 years. Yeah. Of consistent, reinvented, <laughs> systematic oppression. Wow. And so, you know, when slavery was abolished, we just transitioned into the new Jim Crow, where now we have, you know, uh, folks being incarcerated for minimal offenses. And then th th that we have more folks in jail now than were enslaved uh, in the late 1850s. And there's something really wrong with that. And what are we doing about that? Are we raising awareness about what is happening with Black people, but also Native Americans? And what, what, is, what is happening with immigrants? And how are people allowed, how are we repeating history over and over again and not learning from it and not able to um, revisit? One thousand percent, for sure. So <laughs> I know I know you're a mom, I and I wonder um, how you brought that lens to your work in diversity and inclusion. Oh, how can I not? Every day, and, you know, my son was two years old. Not even two years old. Yeah, just just two years old when I started doing diversity and inclusion work. So he has grown up with me and doing this work over the past 20 years. Now he's 22 and went from nursery school uh, and all the way through college. And so, um, I, you know, as a beautifully chocolatey, brilliant, well-educated, well-spoken black man, he's often viewed as a threat. And I worry about his, um, when he goes outside and goes running in the middle of the day, uh, you know, and he says to me, you know, other people can do that, mom. Why can't I? And then that becomes a conversation. Like, care about you. I want you to live to see 24, 25, and, and to have a meaningful existence. And he said, well, what, what are we fighting for, mom? Why, why are we advocating for a better existence for us if I can't live the kind of life? Um, I don't want to live in fear. And so, uh, so much of what I do, it, it comes from the lens of being concerned about young men in my community, but the young man who lives uh, in my house and the generations to come. And, you know, as a parent, you always want more and better, uh, a better life, a better existence, uh, more opportunities for the next generation than what you had. And so I bring that when I, to my work when I think about advocating for opportunities in education and work and an advancement. Um, so in everything I do, I think about my beloved Benjamin. Awesome. <laughs>
So what, um, out of everything that you've experienced in your years of um, working in this space, what um, brings you most joy? Again, it sounds so cliche, so cliche. <laughs> but uh, when I can help someone uh, in a way big or small, we can make a difference in someone's life, uh, whether it's you know winning a, a big case for someone and they are able to, uh, is able to change their life, uh, or it's in a small way where somebody is um, able to receive that promotion, receive that uh, professional development opportunity to grow to that next level, to not be stifled in their career, but to, uh, to, to watch young people go through college and to graduate, to persist and to thrive and then go on to graduate school and for them to, I, to be uh, change makers in the world. So that gives me the most amount of joy. I think over the 20 years that I've been in higher education, uh, just watching young people who come in with this burning desire to change the world uh, and be very intentional about how they're going to change the world and how they're gonna make it a better place and how they're going to tackle the obstacles that gives me the greatest amount of satisfaction. And if I can sponsor, if I can mentor, if I can support, if I can advocate for um, that next generation of thinkers and world changers, that is really uh, impactful and um, important to me. That's great. So I do Hot Mamas as an homage to women in my family who are living their lives in purpose on purpose. So, um, flaws and all. So a hot mama is a woman who's living life in purpose on purpose. So I always ask this question to my guests. Do you believe hot mamas are made or are they born? So for me, I think both. I think that there, I look at some children born into my family and at two and three years old, they are hot mamas. And I'm like, wow, you know, where does that come from? The ancestors must be reincarnated in you. <laughs> uh, but then there are people kind of like me who, uh, thank you for giving me that title because I didn't know I was a hot mama until like you <laughs> invited me to this session. Um, and I think it's something that has evolved over time because when I was younger, I was quiet, I was shy, I was an introvert, and you couldn't get me to say two words. Uh, and then, you know, over time, you have experiences and you grow and you mature and you become who you are and you're constantly changing. Uh, when I looked at this question, I thought about Michelle Obama and her, her book, Becoming. And if, if anybody's a hot mama. Michelle yeah. <laughs> Obama, Obama is a hot mama, okay? Michelle yes. Obama is a hot mama, but she talks about becoming and we're all, it's always this growth and evolution process. For sure. So I wanna pivot a little bit and talk about the caring adults or the people in your life that it helped you to get to where, get you where you are. And so um, I want you to talk some about, you know, um, this notion of community and your tribe. And so um, I want to know how do you, how did you, whether it was in law or in your work with diversity and inclusion, build up that community of support around you? So if you were going through something or if you had an issue, you could, you could look to your tribe and, and, and say, you know, tribe, stand up, help me. How did, how did you develop them in that group? 
So I, it's gradual, it's over time, it's one by one, it's experience, one experience after the other. So I think, you know, the first member of my tribe was my mom and my dad. And uh, to this day, I'm very fortunate that they're still with me and they are supportive and they are the first people I call for anything about, you know, any problem that I have, they're always there to listen. They might not have the answers, but they will give that empathetic ear. But then through each experience that we have, whether it's through school and education, I think of, uh, of friends who I have from elementary school, who I still call upon, who we still stay connected. That wonderful uh, extended family that I talked about with you know, my great-great-grandfather, Bernardino Varela, and the cousins, and the, the cousin that you know, Christine Rose, that is my tribe, that is my ride or die. She's you know, my heart, my sister cousin, and we have lots of those in the family. But it's probably in every job that I have had, I've collected these wonderful people, brilliant lawyers from Greater Boston Legal Services, uh, wonderful allies from Northeastern, educated, you know, these professors and PhDs from the University of Rhode Island, but people from my church, people from my community, people from Bethel, people from Shiloh Baptist Church where I grew up in West Medford. So, and I, I, I'm one of those people who keeps a, a yearbook and I go back and I look at the people. So in preparation, I said, you know, who is in my tribe? And I could trace people back to, to birth, my neighbors from next door who, you know, our grandparents knew each other, our parents and, and three and four generations of our family have been connected. And so I've been blessed to have lots of wonderful friends and family who, um, and the tribe sometimes morphs and shifts. Sometimes people are a close part of your tribe and you can reach out to them. Um, and sometimes you grow in different directions, but they're still part of your heart, still part of your story, still part of your experience. And so uh, tribe members past, present and future, I, I am grateful for and I exalt and lift them up as they have, um, I stand on their shoulders. For sure. What were some of the pieces of advice that you, that carried you throughout your career? Like just gems of wisdom. Um, whew. Well, my mom, she's just a plethora <laughs> of uh, advice. And she had, you know, tons and tons of cliches but um you know one of the things that my mom used to always say to me and this you know this one must have dropped off the page because i wasn't thinking about it but my mom used to always say nothing beats a failure but a try and it's kind of an awkward sentence like nothing what does that mean but um you know what it what it means is unless you try um, you, you're never gonna overcome those failures. And so I guess like, I, there's a book by Carol Dweck now called Mindset and it, it talks about that, trying and failing and learning from the failures. And so I think, you know, this woman who raised me gave me um, the right uh, or the ability to try things and to fail and to keep trying. Because she also used to say, if at first you don't succeed, try and try again. Uh, don't give up, never give up. So being persistent uh, in the face of um, disappointment, discouragement, um, being rejection, uh, and just keep moving, but also knowing that you do have this family of love and support. And then also, and then I think about my father who is, um, that is my Boston accent, uh, that he is a devout uh, a Christian, very deep in the family. And 
what he gave me is the memory scripture from Psalms. Uh, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all things acknowledge him and he shall guide your path. And so just having faith and believing that God will see you through the challenging and difficult times, but thanking him in the good times, acknowledging him in everything and staying strong to my faith. That's amazing. So, you know, I, in terms of your career, you've pivoted from law to diversity and inclusion. And so my audience is mostly women. And, um, you know, I think that there's, you know, panache and doing a pivot. So I would love for you just um, to, to give some words of wisdom for the woman that is out there listening to this that is pivoting careers because you've done it you know, in terms of your history, like very well. <laughs> uh, pivoting is not easy. <laughs> so, um, the, word, the word is very, you know, flows off the tongue. You know, just right. pivot, you know, just right. keep it moving, like, you know, doing the Cupid shuffle or something like that. But, um, you know, I think it's about setting goals. It's about persistence, uh, not being discouraged and following your heart, following your passion, following your desires, and knowing, you know, for, and I guess I would say this for young folks, when I was uh, in the classroom and I used to, you know, do lecture on, um, to a number of students, one of the things that I studied back then was the fact that this generation, so my son's generation, the 20 some odd, they may have as many as 14 different jobs or careers over the course of, it's just a different, a day and age than my parents who would have one job and they would work it for 40 years to retirement and they collect that lovely pension. Those days are long gone. So yeah. my, my advice to younger women is to use that to their benefit, to maximize on the potential of their ability to pivot and be nimble uh, and be willing to do so. So, and the reason why I tell you is because there's opportunity. So, for example, when I was at Organization X, which I'm not gonna, you, you know, each year you would plot along and you would get that little incremental increase. But when you move from one organization to the next, you have the opportunity to reinvent who you are, who you wanna be, and renegotiate how much you think that you're worth. And so you have the potential to have more experiences, which may make you more marketable, which may make you um, more um, valued in the job market. So embrace that, lean in, and don't be afraid to try and fail, but learn from that experience and always ask what you have learned from that experience and just keep moving forward. You know, I think about some of the most painful failures and the most painful challenges that I have had in my life. And when I look to the left and to my right, um, so I, you might remember from Bethel, uh, Reverend Liz Walker, uh, somebody who I bike ride with and we talk and we, we um, uh, share information. And I, I shared a difficult time with her. And her first response was, what did you learn from it? What did you, what did you take away? And it's like, I know that's what I should be thinking, but I'm in my pain right now. Just right. Me, you know, let me feel my sadness and my <laughs> and my pain. Yes. It's like, no, what are you learning from this? What are you going to do different? So knowing that in the difficult times, in the pivots, in the changes, 
that there's opportunities to learn and grow and grow closer to God and to learn patience and to learn understanding. So in all of the challenges, there's an opportunity to learn. And so when you're crying and boohooing, ask yourself, okay, what am I learning from this? How am I growing from this? How can I be better at the next opportunity than I was at this one? And the last piece is whatever got you where to this point, will not sustain you here. So you always have to be a lifelong learner, always pivoting, always growing, always thinking about the next opportunity. And so planning to be in pivot mode, plan for your next change and to say, okay, how, what am I doing today to prepare for that? What course am I taking? What book am I reading? What advice, what program am I involved in? How am I growing myself? So when it is time for me to pivot, I am prepared and I know which way to turn. Awesome, that's great advice. So I would love to do a rapid fire with you. Um, so there's a series of about nine or 10 questions. Um, and so I will ask you a question and you just answer with the first thing that comes to your mind. Um, since you've spent time in Rhode Island and Massachusetts, some of them are Rhode Island and Massachusetts based. So um, let's go. Favorite pastime? Hiking and tennis. Favorite thing to do with your family? Play games. We're all very competitive. We like to play card games. I play tennis with my son. So games, games, games. Competitive games. I like to win. <laughs> I, I hear that. Rhode Island or Massachusetts? It depends upon what? Mmm. Mmm. Thanksgiving or Christmas? Thanksgiving. I'm a foodie. I like the food. Yeah. Me too. Football or soccer? Hmm. It's a toss. It's a toss up. I like them about equal. <laughs> okay. So um, if I had to choose, I'd pick soccer. Soccer. Okay. Um. So better seafood, Rhode Island or Massachusetts? Oh, Rhode Island. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Uh, All right. The food in Rhode Island is awesome. When I came down here, I gained like 20 pounds because I moved <laughs> to the state. It says its food is really, really good down here. Duly noted. Better beaches, Rhode Island or Massachusetts? I think Rhode Island. It's the ocean state. Tons and tons of beaches. I, and I grew up on the Cape. I love Cape Cod, but I, I think that the beaches are better here. Better offerings for having fun, Rhode Island or Massachusetts? Massachusetts. Okay, so wow, we closed with that. All right. Um, and so my very last question um, for for today, um, mantra that helps you through life. Well, again, I'll, I think I will go back to the scripture. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, but in all things acknowledge him and he will guide your path. That's it. That's a great mantra to have and a great way to close out. Um, I want to thank you, Naomi, for your work as a leader in law, diversity, and inclusion, and for helping to shape the world not as it is, but as it should be. Um, you can read the show notes on ameliaauburg.com. Remember, the road to being a hot mama is about the journey and not the destination. One love. <laughs>